Is the pandemic at last winding down? Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. Should we be done worrying about COVID or has the past couple of months simply been the quiet before the next storm? After all, reports show that an Omicron variant called BA2 is the next emerging COVID strain, accounting for as many as 30% of new cases in New York City. Back with us today to discuss the latest on COVID-19 is Dr. Ed Telzak, Chair of Medicine at SBH Health System and an infectious disease specialist. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Telzak. Thank you, and it's good to be back, Steve. Okay, so I know last week for the first time in two years, there were no COVID hospitalizations at St. Barnabas Hospital. So should we view COVID as finally being in the rearview mirror and start looking at it like the flu, something we just learned to live with, or should we stay vigilant for BA2 and any future variants? Well, I think there, at this point in time, there are a number of very important issues related to COVID. Uh, I think the preeminent issue at the moment is what is going to happen in the United States, in New York City specifically, with BA2, the Omicron subvariant. My own feeling is that we need, and this is not the answer most people want to hear, but I think we need to be very vigilant for BA2, and we need to be very vigilant in the future for variants that are yet unknown. So I'm in the camp where COVID is not over, and in particular, where BA2 is of major concern. Um, and let me just explain why, if I may. Prior to our last surge, for example, our Delta surge, England and part of Western Europe predated us by about a month. And as you may know, much of Western Europe is now in the midst of a BA2 surge. So like us, they had, uh, the, let's, for, for want of a better term, uh, let's say the original Omicron, Omicron 1 or BA1, surged about, uh, let's say, several weeks in Western Europe before we experienced it here in New York. And New York and the Northeast was the first place in the United States to experience it. So our, uh, let's say the last two to three weeks of December, the month of January, we had very high numbers of cases in the hospital. At St. Barnabas, um, you know, a 400 bed hospital, we had almost 140 cases at our maximum. It went up very quickly, it went down very quickly. Uh, we had mortalities, but before we went down, Europe went down. And, and I can use England as an example. So England, and I, I just uh, looked at some of their data now, in early January, uh, England had about uh, 200,000 cases of BA1 Omicron per day over a seven-day average. At the, by the end of February, they were down to 35,000 cases per day and on a very sharp downward slope. 
they now have 120,000 cases. So the downward slope really never hit zero, like it's hit zero in this country for all intents and purposes. And so they're now back up. Uh, their hospitals are beginning to fill up. Over the last two weeks, they've had a 65% increase in hospitalizations with uh, going from 1,000 to 1,750 hospitalizations a day. And so I think for us, that's a cautionary tale. So, you know, the first two weeks of March have been free and easy. Um, And all the authorities have told us that it's okay to change our uh, behavior. We no longer need masks. We no longer need social distancing. Uh, We no longer have limits on the numbers of people that can congregate indoors. And concurrent with that, we have the introduction of BA2 into this country. You mentioned in your intro uh, that about 40% of New York City newly diagnosed COVID cases are felt to be BA2. We know that BA1 was about 30% more transmissible than the Delta variant. And BA2 is about that amount more transmissible than BA1. We as a society uh, have waning immunity. Many people were vaccinated a year ago or more than six months ago. And in this country, really in contrast to England, there are the vast majority of people have not been boosted. And so there's a lot of waning immunity Um, Now, maybe people got some additional immunity because of BA1, the uh, original Omicron variant. But I think that because of our lack of booster shots, because of waning immunity, because that BA1 is becoming the dominant variant now in the United States, it's more transmissible. And because of our changing social behaviors, I remain very concerned that what's happening in England will happen here. What confuses me is that you hear someone like Dr. Fauci and other experts like yourself going on radio and TV and agreeing with the relaxation of mask mandates. And, you know, even today, I know Mayor Adams talking about taking masks off of those who are under five years old in schools, in addition to the other students who've had their masks off for a couple of weeks now. That looks like a lot of trouble, if you ask me. I remain very concerned. I'm not absolutely certain that this is going to be the scenario, but there's a reasonable enough chance that I do think we need to be uh, worried about it. And I think on a certain level, we will in fact have to learn to live with some version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus for the uh, near and midterm future. And so what does that mean? I think that we, you know, as, as Omicron levels decreased pretty dramatically, rates decreased pr- pretty dramatically, uh, I think it is acceptable for people to no longer wear masks for periods of time, for people to be more social, to perhaps uh, go to theaters even. Uh, But we have to be very, very flexible, meaning 
I think as soon as we see that BA2 is increasing rates pretty significantly. And so in New York City, for example, in the last two weeks, we've gone from an average of under 600 cases per day to an average of over 800 cases per day. So over a 25% increase in cases over the last two weeks. We haven't seen it in hospitalizations because that's a lagging indicator. But if cases continue to increase at that rate, then I think every consideration needs to be made to bringing back some of the public behaviors that are really instrumental in preventing transmission. That's a very hard sell. I think the other interventions uh, that we need to try to focus on is once again getting our most vulnerable vulnerable people, those over the age of 65 and those with comorbidities, doing everything we can to get them booster shots. Uh, for people that have had a third booster, uh, the FDA and CDC are now contemplating the possibility of a fourth booster. Uh, the one country that has utilized fourth booster shots, Israel, has had some success in limiting severe illness among the most vulnerable, even though they did widespread boosting. How far away are booster shots? We've been talking about it for for weeks now. Is it coming anytime soon? I think in the next week or two. I think that probably for those over the age of 65 or those who are immunocompromised with a very broad definition of immunocompromised, a, uh, a fourth injection, a second booster shot um, is going to be uh, going to be recommended. So I think that's very important. And then the government has also put a lot of reliance on a very good drug that is now available, and that's called Paxlovid. And there will be other drugs, other protease inhibitors that Uh, When individuals, uh, you know, the study was done on unvaccinated individuals who had mild to moderate symptoms, and it was very effective to the tune of about 90% in preventing hospitalizations and even more effective in preventing death. And so this is a drug that's available. It's a Pfizer pharmaceutical. They're scaling up. Many patients have been able to access the drug, but numbers of cases are now very low. And the question is, and the drug is good, is most effective within five days of developing symptoms. Okay, so you test positive and then you take this drug to reduce symptoms and long-term issues. And to prevent hospitalization and severe illness. And I think this drug becomes widespread, and Biden has coined the term for this drug, test and treat, although it's been used in, you know, other situations before. So basically, when you test positive, if you have mild to moderate symptoms and, uh, you know, you're at risk for severe illness, which everyone over the age of 65 is, diabetics, coronary artery disease, asthma, many, many patients you would, you know, that night or the following day, you would get your five-day course of Paxlovid to take. Now, 
theoretically, that sounds great. Uh, in practice, that's a very hard program to pull off. And, uh, you know, and another important issue. Uh, but so let me just to sort of wrap up the Paxlovid and booster issue. I think those are our two major tools that we have to keep COVID a relatively mild illness to prevent the consequences of hospitalization and mortality uh, from right. COVID. So we have them well, at well, our disposal. Yeah. Why is the Paxlovid a, a tough protocol to pull off? Well, I think not everybody gets tested when they don't feel well, or they wait, you know, four or five days before they get tested. And so people have to be very educated and informed about the importance of doing a test as soon as possible. And people still to this day, not everyone has ready access to tests. And if they do a home test and they're positive, a doctor has to prescribe Paxlovid. So somehow they have to make it into the medical system for a doctor or, or a provider who has a license uh, to prescribe drugs to send Paxlovid uh, to this patient. And so you can't just you can't just walk into a pharmacy and 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 have a pharmacist eventually if you take you know give you a test and then if you're positive prescribe. Not at this time. Drug? Not at this time. It requires a licensed prescriber. And so, um, you know, that might be a good idea. And, you know, there's a certain Congress or Biden has asked Congress to um, to provide uh, $15 billion uh, specifically for boosters for the entire population, whether you have insurance or not, to continue to allow free testing and to link testing to Paxlovid. Congress has not authorized that sum of money. And so if that money is not authorized, it's gonna get even harder to get tests and even more challenging for uninsured patients to get Paxlovid. So those are big hurdles. And based on the European experience, uh, BA2 might be a few weeks away when that's gonna be a critical intervention to keep people well. Okay. Okay, it's a good point. When you hear corporations saying, you know, by April 1st, we want people to come back to work who haven't been back to work in, in two years, what do you think? Is that a good idea? Or again, in light of what you've been saying, is that, you know, more reason for concern? Well, I think that once again, you have to be very nimble in this era of COVID. And so when you know, if you're going to ask people to go back to work, I think when rates are very low, that's okay. But as soon as you see rates rising, and not when they're, you know, at their peak, but long before their peak, you have to show the flexibility and the fortitude to reverse decisions while once again concurrently making sure people are boosted. So first of all, making sure people are vaccinated. And in this country, you know, a third of the population is not vaccinated and less than 30% are boosted. So I think, you know, those are our main interventions. And, 
you know, I'd say we've been marginally successful at that, not as successful as we need to be. And then this whole Paxlovid issue needs to get in, you know, in sync. And that I think is unlikely to happen within the next couple of weeks. I think if people want to set a deadline for going to work by April 1st, but, you know, it could be by mid to late April that that turns out not to be the right decision. And, you know, the mayor, the CEOs, uh, the state and federal authorities need to say it's time to back off. There are certain states that will never not allow people to go to work, uh, no matter what's going on in in the environment. And, uh, you know, I think people are rightfully very tired of COVID playing such a dominant role in their work life, in their social life, in their family life. But COVID is, COVID remains here. And, uh, and I think it's something we have to continue to deal with. But once again, I would emphasize, we do have very good tools. We also have, let me mention one more tool that we have for people that are immunocompromised who have gotten vaccines, but there's a concern that the vaccines may not be effective for them because of their immune system. We have monoclonal antibodies that are long lasting that we're utilizing now for uh, some of our patients on chemotherapy or with malignancies, individuals on various immune suppressive drugs for rheumatologic diseases. We're giving them the monoclonal antibodies, even though they've been vaccinated, to further protect them from from COVID. Right, right. I I, I know you're not a pediatrician, but I wonder how you feel about the Moderna now is looking for emergency approval from the FDA to give vaccines to children under five. You have a, a young grandson. I've got three young grandsons. Would you recommend they get vaccinated if this becomes available? You know, Pfizer previously did a, uh, a two-shot vaccine trial on children between six months and five years. And that trial, based on their data, the FDA deferred a decision, and Pfizer is now finishing up a trial where a placebo-controlled trial where a third injection is being given for that age group. Moderna submitted their data to the uh, FDA. It just became available to the public this morning. And they had almost 7,000 children also, uh, I think between the ages of six months and six years. So a little bit older. There, the amount of adult dose in the Pfizer trial was I think 10% of the adult dose was given to these kids. In the uh, Moderna trial, it was 25%, so a quarter of the dose. And the immune response, where they look at neutralizing antibody in this age group, was equivalent to that of young adults. So from that point of view, the two dose at a slightly higher proportion of the adult dose uh, seemed more effective than Pfizer. However, Moderna did their trial in the midst of an Omicron epidemic. And what they found were the kids that got the the vaccine 
had a had 40 percent. It was 40. The vaccine was 40 percent approximately effective, which is below what typically has been a 50 percent standard. So in terms of clinical efficacy for symptomatic COVID, it was effective. 40 percent is not nothing, but it hasn't met the standard of the adult trial, not surprisingly, because it's the original vaccine against the original COVID virus, as opposed to the Omicron COVID virus, which we know has lots of mutations that allow it to be more effective in terms of infecting its host. I think Moderna also feels that probably a third shot is required to get higher levels of protection. But with 40% protection, and once again, I don't think there were any hospitalizations or deaths in either the vaccinated kids or the kids who got placebo. So with 40% protection, I would give my uh, nine-month-old grandchild, if it was up to me, it's not up to me, I'm the grandparent. (laughs) So I would counsel my daughter to give uh, baby Ruby the vaccine. Okay, that's good advice. Uh, Let me ask you again, you know, you're an infectious disease specialist. You probably wash your hands a hell of a lot more than the average person does. Are you going to the supermarket without wearing a mask? Are you going to concerts? Are you going to Broadway shows? Are you going to sporting events held indoors? So I went to my first concert, maybe it was uh, two weeks ago, when cases were at their nadir. Nader is the lowest point. And, you know, it was at Lincoln Center. You had to show proof of being vaccinated. Everyone had to wear a mask. Everyone did wear a mask. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, checking out all kinds of people around me. You know, it was not entirely comfortable for me. I went with friends. They were very comfortable there. I, you know, I was less comfortable. I've eaten in a restaurant indoors once. Now that it gets warmer, I'll eat outdoors. And I'm planning a trip to Ireland, a trip that was canceled in October because of COVID. And I've already been told by, we're two couples, the other three people, one of whom is my wife, have already said they're going no matter what I say or what I do. (laughs) And I, you know, and Western Europe by then, may actually be on the downward slope of right. the uh, the BA2 outbreak that they're having. I would be very reluctant to go on that trip today. Are, are you concerned about the psychological effects of COVID two years now? Are you seeing that, that people are feeling stress, are feeling loneliness, isolation? Well, I, you know, I see it in my personal life. People talk to me and they ask me about, you know, when friends talk to me or my kids talk to me or, you know, family members speak with me, I say what I'm saying here, that I'm concerned about, you know, the next surge. You know, I could see like their smiles disappear. People have had a very hard time. There is no question about it. My kids started going back to work. You know, those who go to work have started going back to work. And I think they're much happier going back to work. 
you know, there's a part of uh, society that's quite happy working at home. But there's no question that it's had a, a profound impact, certainly on adolescents, on children. You know, Mayor Adams, his desire to have kids take off their masks, I think is a heartfelt desire. We know mental health services are severely lacking everywhere, and especially if you're poor, they're severely lacking. So it's a very difficult situation. The one thing that I've started doing, I think you know about this, is I've started going to the gym. And so I've been doing that probably for about a month, but I'm prepared to stop going if BA2 really escalates in terms of numbers. Right, let me ask you one final question, and it's sort of like, could be a long essay question. Uh, what have you learned as a physician from the pandemic? Now, I know you started your career during the AIDS epidemic, and now you have this pandemic 40 years later that you're dealing with. Is there anything that you can say fairly concisely that you've learned? I, I would say probably the single principle that COVID has taught me is, number one, I would say, is the unpredictability of the virus and how it interacts with society. That's one very important principle. I think a second thing is that this is a worldwide problem. What happens in one place, what happens in you know uh, Southern Africa affects what happens in New York, affects what happens in India, affects what happens now in Hong Kong and China and Western Europe. And so it's really one world. It took us a very long time to figure that out with HIV, you know, the implications of a, of a worldwide pandemic. And that science is very powerful, but public health is at least as important as science. And policy is at least as important as science. So we have these great tools at our disposal and Many people who have access to these tools, vaccines, boosters, are not taking advantage of it. Many people who should have access to the tools don't. And that's once again, the one world issue. So I think those are the key things that I carry in my pocket these days. Well, Dr. Telzak, thank you very much. As the oldest guy in the gym, I will miss you as the second oldest guy in the gym if you don't come back. But again, thank you for your time today. For information on services at St. Barnabas Hospital, go to sbhny.org. Until next time. Take care.